Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 25. And follow along as I read that passage. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sherah Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rock and on the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired behind, beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day... Every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. 
but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Our Heavenly Father, as we have gathered together to worship you, to fellowship together, to hear your word read and proclaimed, we pray that you would you would use these ordinary means to to strengthen us in the faith. We, we pray that during this time you might give us understanding and insight into your word, but we also ask that you would move our affections for you, that you would move our hearts to trust you, to recognize in all of the threats that we face and all of the dangers we face, you face you are faithful and you have proved your faithfulness by giving us your son that we might have life and forgiveness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the weeks leading up to Christmas this year, we've been looking at prophecies from the Old Testament concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we've seen that Christ is the greater son of David who will build God's house, who actually who is God's house and is who, who is growing, building this house with the people of God. He will sit on the throne of his eternal kingdom. And last week, Tracy led us to consider Christ as the great warrior who will crush all of his enemies. And this week, we consider this passage and Christ as the virgin-born son who will serve as a sign of God's faithfulness, God's enduring faithfulness. We're really moved to consider God's faithfulness in this passage. In particular, we, we see that God is faithful to keep his word. Also, we see that God is faithful to, to judge all unrighteousness. And we also see that God is faithful to save a people for himself. He is faithful in all of these things. And really, these things come into play as we think about Christmas. God has kept his word in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to save his people from their sins. And with the coming of Christ, a division is made. A dividing line between those who trust him and those who don't. Those who don't trust him will be judged in the righteousness of God. But those who do trust in him will be saved as God's remnant, God's precious people. And so to look at this passage, I want us to consider uh, three threats to the people of God. Three threats. The first threat is the external threat to the people of God. And we see this in verses 1 through 9. And each of these threats that we see, they are a threat to the people of God. And as such, they are a threat to the promises of God. Because God said He would keep a people for Himself. He would save a people for Himself. So if God's people are destroyed, the promises of God are destroyed, and the faithfulness of God is destroyed. So first we see this external threat. Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, came to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, Judah, to wage war against it. But they weren't able to mount their, mount their attack yet. The great threat to Israel uh, during the ministry of Isaiah was actually Assyria. So you have Assyria, this great nation marching to the west, just steamrolling all of these smaller Nations And so Syria and Israel decide, well, we need to do something about this. We need to team up 
and protect ourselves against Assyria. We need to do whatever we can, and so we need all the help we can get. And so let's, let's enlist Ahaz in our little alliance so that maybe we could withstand Assyria. But Ahaz wouldn't, so they try to force his hand. They're pressing down on Judah. They're pressing down on Ahaz. They're ready to attack. And so this report comes to the house of David. That is Ahaz and the people of God. This is the report. Syria is in league with Ephraim. That is, Syria and Israel are conspiring together. They're allying together against us. And look at the response. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Have you ever been so frightened? You almost felt like your heart was shaking inside of you. Your insides were moving around something Frightened you. Maybe you were maybe you're out in the wilderness in the middle of the night and you hear some sound and it just it makes you tremble with fear. Or maybe you're facing uh, some terrible diagnosis and it, it causes you great fear in your heart. This is how Ahaz and the people of God are fearing this attack. And by human standards, it's a natural response. A rational response. Enemies are bearing down on you and you know you can't withstand them on on your own. Of course you're going to be afraid. I I think about when I've played paintball before. And you know, those those paintballs, when you get hit with a paintball, it really stings. It hurts. It causes a big bruise on you. And so I'm I'm running around from obstacle to obstacle, really frightened to get hit with a paintball. And in those times, I've thought, what would it be like if these were real bullets? And that causes a shiver to to go down your spine. Because we know men and women fight in real wars today. Can you imagine the fear you would have at being in a real war with real bombs and bullets? You're going to be afraid. But if Ahaz and the people of God had had spiritual eyes and faith in God, really, they would see that there's nothing to fear from Syria in Israel. Look again at the first part of verse 2. It says, when the house of David was told this. When the house of David was told this. Now this language should remind us of what we saw two weeks ago. Do you remember what we saw in First Chronicles 17? David has a house. The people of God have their houses, but God goes around in a tent. And David wants to build a house for God. And what does God say to David? No, I will build a house for you. I will build you a household and establish a kingdom for you, which will last forever. This is the house of David. God made a covenant with David that his throne would be established forever. And so it's to this household, it's to the house of David that this report comes. And so if Ahaz and the people of God had been spiritually minded, they would have remembered the covenant of God with David. He would have remembered the promises of God to David in his own household, and he would not have feared. But Ahaz is not spiritually minded. He is rebellious against the Lord in both his evil deeds and his unbelief. And we know this from 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 2 to 4. Listen to Ahaz and how he is described. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right In the eyes of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering 
according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and every under every green tree. A despicable and ruthless man. He is not God-fearing. He is not a spiritual man. And therefore, he doesn't see things spiritually. And so, of course, he's not going to believe the promises of God. His hope is not in this promise that God had made to David and to his house. But think about this. Don't we often respond with the same sort of fear and unbelief in the midst of our circumstances? When we are panicked with fear, what are we revealing except for a heart of unbelief toward the promises of God. If we see external threats coming against us in whatever form, and if we see those threats and forget God's faithfulness, then our hearts will waver. They will shake in those times of distress. But if we are careful to remember the promises of God to us in Christ, then we will be established in our hearts. There's a, there's a further comfort here for Ahaz and the people of God. And notice here the grace of God in giving assurances to his people of his own faithfulness. Even though Ahaz won't believe, even though those, these people won't believe, God had given a promise to the house of David years ago, and he's gracious and compassionate in this instance to give a further assurance. Verse 3, the Lord speaks to Isaiah. And the Lord tells Isaiah to take his son and go meet Ahaz at a certain place at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Perhaps Ahaz has gone there in his fear to, to kind of scope out the most vulnerable spot where they, where they were perhaps weakest, where if you cut off the water supply, then you're done. You've lost. There's nothing you can do. So Ahaz stands there. I can imagine his legs trembling when the prophet of God approaches and speaks a bold word. Look at what Isaiah was to say to him in verses 4 to 9. He says, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of those two smoldering stumps of firebrand. On occasion, our family, we like to go camping, and we don't go deep in the woods like maybe some of you guys do. We like to go to that place where you park your car at Falls Lake, and you just set your tent up right behind it. If you get too cold, you can start up your car and get, turn the heat on. stuff. But one of our favorite parts is building a fire, and we'll roast the marshmallows, and we'll just sit out by the fire telling stories or, or having fun together as a family, keeping warm by the fire. And it's sometimes really difficult to keep that fire going. But you'll, you notice when that fire is about to go out, there's just a few sticks left, a few stumps left, and they're, they have, they're, they're red, they're, they're burning red, they're hot, but they're about to go out. They're about to be smoldered. And to build it back up, you have to blow on it. Maybe it'll build a little bit of fire. You're giving oxygen to it. But what do you have to do to put it out? Just pour a little water on it. Just put a little dirt on it, and it is done. It's gone. And this is what this is what God is saying about these two these two nations. They're nothing. They're nothing to fear. They're just smoldering pieces of wood that can be put out like nothing. They're just sticks, nothing to be afraid of. And then God gives a straightforward word. It won't stand. It shall not stand. This is not going to happen. It shall not come to pass. These two nations will be gone before you know it. And then look look at the end of verse 9. He says, "If you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. It's a play on words just as it is in our English. Be firm in your faith or you won't stand firm. Really, it's presenting 
Ahaz and the people of God is presenting us with these two alternatives. Two alternatives towards God. You can trust him and you will be established. You will stand firm or you can doubt him and you will not be established. You can refuse to trust him and you will fall. You choose. If you stand firm in trusting God, you won't stand firm at all. In other words, Ahaz and my people, if you don't stand with me, you won't be able to stand. This is your hope. No one else can save me. It's me or nothing else. And as a sign to Ahaz, as a sign to be strong and remember the promises of God, God has Isaiah take his son along with him. Did you notice this detail? Isaiah's son is Shear Jashub. And look down at the footnotes in your Bible if you have that. And you'll see what this name means. It means a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. Now, this seems to be a foreshadowing of a, of a sort of what's to come. What is a remnant? It's a, a little portion, a small remaining quantity of something greater. So something is going to happen to Judah, but God will rescue a remnant. God will establish a remnant. In fact, what we will see is that there will be those within the number of God's people in the nation who are unbelieving, who are not trusting in God along with Ahaz. And because of their unbelief, they will receive judgment. And yet, even in the midst of judgment and loss, there is hope for the people of God. He will keep his promises. For those who truly trust in God, God will rescue them. He will rescue a remnant. He will establish them and a remnant shall return. Let us learn from this that that we ought not to be like Ahaz, stubborn in unbelief toward God. It's true that external forces can do real harm to us. We know this to our bodies, to our homes and to our families. Disease can ravage our bodies. Right. We don't know within the next year if one of us are going to be diagnosed with cancer or something. There are real external threats to us physically, us emotionally, us personally. We are not immune to these threats, and yet we know in the midst of them that God is faithful. And that ultimately we have nothing to fear. My sister has a friend that just lives down the road in Wendell who has been facing cancer. She's, what, in her 30s? She's been facing this terrible diagnosis, and it's just, it's ugly, it's disgusting. It's, it makes us cry out, Lord Jesus, come. And yet, in the midst of the ongoing treatments, she is trusting in the Lord because she knows ultimately this is where her salvation is found. This is where her hope is found. This is where her joy is found. And in the midst of that external threat of cancer, she is holding firm in the faith. We know that if we are going to stand at all in the midst of this troubled world, it will only be as we stand firm in trusting him. There's salvation in no one else. There's ultimate hope in no one else except the Lord. But perhaps, perhaps our unbelief lies not so much in that we doubt God's faithfulness. This is, this is me sometimes. This is where I, I wrestle sometimes. Perhaps we fear what God's faithfulness means for us individually. We know he's sovereign. We know he's, he's good. But we know that God's faithfulness and goodness doesn't mean that each individual Christian will be free from suffering. 
In fact, we know that God in his faithfulness might use suffering to purge us of sin, to discipline us, that we might be conformed to the image of his son. And that is frightening. We don't want to accept that sovereignty and goodness of God. Perhaps this is what we fear. But we should learn from this point that no matter what comes to pass, God is gracious and compassionate towards us in Christ. He keeps coming back over and over to comfort even this rebellious people, even rebellious Ahaz. He keeps coming back to assure him of his promises. If you will believe, just trust in these things. And he is patient and gracious to us to assure us of his promises for us in Christ. The external threat was Syria and Israel, but the internal threat is even more dangerous. And what is that? But Ahaz's unbelief. See, this is an internal threat to the people of God. You see this in beginning verse 10, verses 10 through 16. This is a, a persistent and stubborn unbelief that Ahaz has. We read again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. The Lord is speaking to Ahaz through Isaiah And yet the author feels comfortable saying it was the Lord who is speaking. This is an amazing thing. I could get off on a tangent talking about God speaking to Isaiah, God speaking to his people through a prophet. And God speaks to us today in his word. He is speaking to us this very moment. And he gives a command to Ahaz. Ahaz, ask for a sign which will confirm my word to you. This will be a confirming sign. Ask for it. Whatever you wish. And I will give you a sign. You can ask a sign from above the highest heights or a sign from below the lowest depths. This is like any of our dreams, right? Ask whatever you want. I'll give you a sign to confirm your faith. And Ahaz responds saying that he will not. He he does it in a way that sounds very sanctified. Do you ever respond to someone in a a really super spiritual way and really you're just hiding your sin or you're just hiding your unbelief? This is what he's doing. He says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. What does that sound like? Deuteronomy 6, 16, where we read, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test as you tested him at Massa. Remember, the people of God were grumbling against Moses and against God. Why would you bring us out of Egypt only for us to starve, only for us to die with with no water? To test the Lord is to question his word and his purposes for his people. So Ahaz is acting super spiritual, but really he's covering over his unbelief. He simply refuses to place his trust in God to the point where he refuses a direct command from the Lord. I will not ask. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. So Isaiah speaks up. Is it not enough for you to wear me out with your unbelief and rebellion, but you're wearing God out like this too? Fine. Here's a sign for you. I'll give you a sign. Here's a sign so that you will know of my faithfulness, so that you will know I keep my word. And notice now that he's not only speaking to Ahaz, the king, he has made his audience, again, the house of David. Hear then, O house of David. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this 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 whole chapter is just so rich uh, for the people of God. And, and I was 
as I was studying, I was texting uh, Tracy. I, I texted him, I think, this is rich stuff. I don't know if I can do justice to this text in one week. And we texted a few times, and he texted me something back. Almost, It almost felt like, you think it's rich? Well, look at this. <laughs> and showed me something else. Do you notice these words that the author is using? Um, and, and Hebrew is a playful word, and so there's... Uh, as we already saw, word plays that the author uses to try to instruct us, to try to show us what's going on. And there's something interesting here, and I probably won't do justice to this too, but it is amazing. The word translated for heaven in verse 11 means high or that which is above, and it sounds a lot like the word translated virgin in verse 14. So here's another play on words, the, the author being playful here, Isaiah being playful here with these words. God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, look, I told you to choose a sign either from the highest heights or from the lowest depths. And since you won't choose, I give you a sign myself and it's going to be a sign from above. It's going to be a sign from heaven. This virgin will give birth. There's this is no natural conception. This is a supernatural conception. This is no ordinary sign. It is an extraordinary sign from above. This little boy will be from above. And Matthew has the same reading of it as we read in Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Turn there in your Bibles, Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother had been betrothed To Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place, Matthew reports, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. According to earthly names, his name is Jesus. But according to who he is, according to his character and nature, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is God clothed with human flesh. He is the eternal God making his dwelling among us, coming down from above to be with us. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the son in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word took on flesh and walked among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This son will not be born and grow up before these two nations are destroyed and laid to waste. It's a sign that will be slow in coming. Ahaz himself will not see it, but the house of David will see it. In fact, as you saw, Joseph, a son of David, saw it many years later. 
But the prophecy doesn't stop there. There's more to this. And it doesn't sound good to Ahaz and Judah. We've seen the external threat of foreign armies and the internal threat of unbelief. But look at the divine threat of judgment in the remaining verses. The land of the two kings who threaten you will be deserted. But verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Not only will Syria and Israel come to desolation, but there will also be great national consequences for Judah because of Ahaz's rebellion and unbelief. See, there's something else going on in the background that we become aware of by reading more about Ahaz in 2 Kings 16, 7 to 9. Listen to 2 Kings 16, 7 7 to 9. Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, so this is Ahaz to the king of Assyria, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he killed Rezin. It's not just that Ahaz didn't trust in the Lord. He also placed his faith in another. And really, isn't this always the case? Unbelief in the Lord isn't merely unbelief. Rather, it's taking this trust, this hope, this faith that we have and placing it on someone or someone else rather than God. It is idolatry. We begin trusting in a created thing rather than the creator. Instead of turning to the Lord for help. Though God put his hand out to Ahaz time and time again, Ahaz turned instead to the great Assyria for help. He aligned himself with Assyria for their help and protection rather than resting on the Lord's protection and provision. And there there seems to be... uh, a real practical application here for the people of God, for the church of God. Some Christians in America have expressed fear, almost a panic about increasing pressure on Christians. And and it does seem to be there an increasing pressure on Christians to conform to the ways of the world in our beliefs and in our behaviors and our practices. And what might be the temptation for Christians in this sort of situation? What might be the temptation for churches in the prospect of oppression or even persecution. It might be to form unholy alliances. Unholy alliances with with someone or something else that can protect us. Maybe they could even give us, the church, a privileged voice in America. And the church can have greater and greater influence. So we might be tempted to rescue rest in political power or influence. We might be tempted to, if we can just get the right person on our side, then the church will really be strong. Then we'll really rise to the occasion. We'll have great influence and power. And we will be at ease. This, this is what we need, we might think. 
And this really has been the temptation for the church throughout the ages to align themselves with where the money is or where the power and influence are. But instead, brothers and sisters, we are called to rest in the Lord, to rest in his protection and provision for us, to trust him and not to sell out to worldly prospects of power and influence. Ahaz is an example to us of abandoning the promises of God. Has not God promised to protect his church and build his church in the face of any external threat? Did not Christ say that the gates of hell would not prevail against us? He has said this. He has promised that his church will not fail. And so we must trust in his promises. We must rest in him alone. And what is the sign of God's faithfulness to the house of David? It is this virgin who conceived and bore a son, God with us. God is with us, church. This is why we can be confident in the face of any persecution or oppression, any maligning of our, of our faith, of our practice. This is why we can be confident and bold, because God is with us. We have nothing to fear in this world. God not only gives promises to his people, he gives his presence. God is with us. God is with us here and now as we read his word, as we study his word together. The almighty God is with us. He's with us by his spirit. He indwells those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But this example of Ahaz reminds us that God's presence means not only comfort and safety and love for his people, it also reminds us of his presence of judgment for those who oppose him in unbelief. This is how signs work. The same sign is blessing. The same sign for blessing is a sign of judgment for those who oppose God, for those who doubt him. So, for instance, the Lord's Supper is a sign of blessing to those who eat and drink the cup. With faith in Jesus Christ. But what are we told by Paul? Those who do not discern the body. Those who are eating and drinking in in an unworthy manner. What are they doing? They are eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. A sign is a blessing as it is received by faith. But it is a sign of judgment for those who reject it and refuse to receive it by faith. This, this sign of the virgin-born son is announced to Ahaz and to the house of David, and many of them do not believe. They are refusing to trust in God. They are hearing judgment upon themselves. And let us look and see what this judgment is in the rest of our passage. Notice this, the four repetitions of this phrase, in that day. He's referring to that day of verse 17, what the Lord will bring upon Ahaz and this house. Look at the language of verse 18. The Lord summons Egypt and Assyria with a whistle like flies and like bees. These two nations will cover every crack and crevice of the land, just swarming it. There will be nowhere to hide. And take note of the language that is used here. In the mornings, I let our dog Violet out into the yard to relieve herself. And especially as it's getting colder and colder, I want to get in as soon as possible. And so what do I do? I'll I'll whistle. I'll whistle for her. Come on. Come on inside. I'll whistle. And she comes almost immediately when I whistle. 
because I'm her master. She's my dog. She, she obeys what I tell her. Most of the time she does that. Now notice here that as great as Assyria is, this great power steamrolling all the nations it is encountering, Assyria is at the beck and call of the Lord. He whistles and she comes. Our God is sovereign over all of these things, even these external threats that we see. The Lord is sovereign over them. Ahaz did not recognize that, but now with the word of the Lord, he does. Or at least it is spoken to him. Looking back, he should have called out to the master over the bees. To the one who calls them and they go. To the one who sends out a command and everyone obeys. And what about verse 20? The Lord will use Assyria as a razor. The whole body of Judah will be shaved. He will be brought to nakedness and shame because of his unbelief. In verse Verses 21 to 25, Judah will become a wasteland. In fact, there will be so few people around, only a few animals are needed to supply all the food. And instead of vineyards, there will be briars and thorns, a wasteland. Now, someone may look on these prophecies with great contempt for God. Many people do this when they look at the Old Testament. They see God's judgments. And yet, what we learn from this is that God is righteous and holy. God is just in all of his judgments. We are reminded that if God is going to be a just God, sin must be punished. There must be a judgment or else God is not just. And what if a murderer stood trial and he confessed he did it? He confessed he committed the murder and he was proud of it. Not sorry, not repentant at all. And what if the lawyers on both sides presented their cases, but the defense just conceded everything to the prosecution? And so you think it's an open and shut case and the jury meets and discusses and they come back rather quickly. Why? Because you know what the judgment will be. It's obvious what it must be. But to your complete and utter surprise, the jury finds him not guilty and they let him go on the spot. What would our reaction to that be? Shock and outrage, disgust, justice must be done. He must be held to account for for his murder, for this crime he has committed. Clearly, we would recognize the injustice of such a thing. Hopefully, we would demand justice and fairness. Well, we, we know that injustices have occurred in our justice system over time and through our world. There is injustice, and it's because we can't quite live up to the justice that we know would be ideal. Sin, bribery of judges, corruption among government officials and judges, and lack of knowledge all contribute to injustice on the earth. But God has no sin. God cannot be bribed like a mere human judge. There's no corruption in him and he knows all things. God is just and he cannot be otherwise. And so we have a question in our minds. If God is just and sin must be punished, how do we account for the injustices in the world today? And the answer is justice is coming. The sign of the virgin born son. Will be a judge over those who refuse to trust in him. It may seem delayed at the moment, but it will come. It is sure to come. Ahaz and Judah would wait, but the judgment would come. And we can be sure that any and every injustice committed in this world will one day meet its sure 
judgment. God is faithful in that he will judge unrighteousness. But what does this mean for us, friends? Are we not guilty of sin? Do we not deserve judgment, God's righteous judgment? Children, are you guilty of sin? Just a few weeks ago, some of our children covered catechism question numbers 60 and 61. Question, what is the fifth commandment? Answer, the fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. Question, what does the fifth commandment teach us? To love and obey our parents. Children, have you kept that command to honor your father and your mother? Have you kept it perfectly in thought, word, and deed? Adults, have you kept that commandment? What about the sixth and seventh commandments? You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. Haven't you broken those also? And if your mind quickly answers, no, I haven't committed murder. I haven't committed adultery. Then consider what our Lord says in Matthew 5. You have heard it said to those of all, you shall not commit murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And again, he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. In fact, if we went through each one of these commandments and we were completely honest with ourselves, we would have to admit we have broken every last one of them. Moses literally broke the tablets of the commandments and we have broken them with our thoughts, attitudes, words and actions. And for this, the Bible tells us there must be a judgment. There must be a punishment for we have not loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. And for all this, we deserve this just judgment of God. We have committed the crime. We have no excuse. If we were to be put on trial by God. With no doubt, we would be convicted. For God is perfect in knowledge. And he's just and we cannot bribe him to let us off the hook. And this, friends, is why Christmas is so precious to us, right? That's why Christ is so precious to us. For he was born of a virgin 2,000 years ago. And do you remember the angel's words? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save their people, his people from their sins. Emmanuel, God with us, God with us for our salvation. Jesus truly is the sign from above of God's faithfulness to us. For this child was not only born, but he grew into a man of God, a man who never sinned, who would never be, who could never have been convicted in a court of being guilty. And yet, what do we see except Jesus being tried in a court and found guilty? Unjustly. And he was sentenced to a brutal death on the cross And it was here that Jesus saved his people from their sins. For on the cross, God poured out his judgment 
that was due to his own people. For all of our sins, for, for the breaking of these commandments, he poured out his wrath, his judgment that was due to us upon Christ. It was on the cross that our penalty was paid. On, on ours, our penalty was paid, and all who will come to him in faith. So really, it again all comes down to trust. Would you believe what the Lord has said? Will you believe in this virgin-born son who paid the penalty for sin? Are you going to trust in God and the finished work of Christ to save you? Or are you trusting in some other thing, whether it be your own good works or penance? Are you trusting in God for your current circumstances and the external threats that come against you? Or will you see some sort of unholy alliance, some sinful means of getting out of them? Are you characterized by the rebellion and unbelief of Ahaz? Or are you a part of that faithful remnant which the Lord will rescue? which the Lord is keeping for himself until the day Christ will return and take us home. Be firm in the faith. Cling tightly to Christ, for he is our salvation. Let us pray together.